Okay, we're reading from Philippians 4, 2 through 9 in the ESV version. Give me a minute if you want to turn to your Bible or your electronic device. Okay, it says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning, church family. I was doing some painting yesterday, and I had a little bit of an epiphany when it comes to Philippians. You see, when we first moved into our house, uh, the people that lived there before it, um, whenever they met with a designer, they just asked the designer, how do we make our house look like a giant sunflower? Okay. Um, there was an atrocious yellow sunflower paint on every single wall except the front office, and that was navy blue with a, a pinstripe of white that then went into uh, a light sky blue, and that was much worse than the rest of the house. So what we did, um, because we watch a lot of Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, we got into the house, and we, before we moved anything in, we painted it for three days straight. And I'm talking 16, 18-hour days. We were just painting our lives away. And then we finished, and we sat back, and we said, it is very good. We looked at the creation around us, and we felt the blessing and the love of God in our house. And then six months later, I was doing something in our bathroom, and this is in the master bath. Uh, maybe I was getting something out of the, uh, the, the counter underneath the sink, and I realized there was a thin strip of sunflower yellow just glaring back at me with this grimace on its face. And I thought right then, man, the job wasn't finished. It wasn't complete. And I felt so good about it. I thought, man, we had covered up all the ugliness of this house. And so yesterday, I just want you to know, yesterday, and not because of starting point being at our house today, look, if I find you in my master bathroom, we got problems, okay? You don't go in there, all right? We have a guest bathroom for guests. Master, you ain't the master. Stay out, okay? Uh, but I painted it, and it wasn't because you're coming over, all right? But I painted it because it needed to be finished. It was work that had yet to be completed. And I think this is exactly where we find ourselves with Paul today. I think he is continuing to do some deeper work on our hearts. And I think it's much like the painting that I had to do yesterday. There was some, there was, you know, we have a five and a seven-year-old and there's fingerprints on everything that's about this high and down. I don't, I'm not even sure some places how they get fingerprints there. Um, but a little, little touch-up paint is needed every now and then. We can keep the outer facade looking nice because that is what people see. But I think what we're doing today is a little bit of trim work in the master bathroom, okay? 
And once again, that's not a place that people see very much. I think a lot of us can keep people uh, at a distance. We can have a 15-foot pole, a a 25-foot pole, a 50-foot pole, and we can make people feel like, hey, yeah, you know me. You know me pretty well, but you don't really, truly know me. We try to protect ourselves. We try to put up our defenses, set up barriers, and we do that with ourselves as well, and we do that with God, and the reason we do that with God is because if we like God, and that means that we have to actually deal with these things ourselves, and so today we are diving even further into emotional maturity so that we can become spiritually mature. We are asking God to take care of some things in our lives, to put some strategies in place in our lives, but that means that we also have to deal with it. So today, we begin in the conclusion of the conclusion of the book of Philippians. Next week, Jacob is going to finish this out, and I cannot wait. Man, this has been a good book for me. It has certainly been so applicable to my life. But today, Paul continues to address some deeper issues, some deeper work of the heart, and he does so by addressing some conflict. He does so by encouraging some anxious hearts, and he does so by giving a strategy on how to deal with these things, on how to cope with them. And so today, our big idea, our big takeaway is that healthy churches and healthy Christians address conflict, address anxiety, and address thoughts, and address actions according to Jesus, and according to Jesus alone. There's a reason we need this. We need this because if we want to carry on as new creations, that means that we need to carry on with the mind of Christ as we have been following this theme throughout this book, the mind of Christ. And if we want to keep our eye on the prize ahead of us, and that means that we can't let conflict get in our way. That means we can't let anxiety get in our way. We can't let things like worry occupy our minds and hijack our thoughts anymore. We have to press on in Jesus. And so we start this morning with our first point that leads right into our first two verses, and that is get along for heaven's sake. Get along for heaven's sake. And this is about to make sense here in a little bit. Get along for heaven's sake because healthy churches and healthy Christians address conflict according to Jesus. Philippians 4, 2 through 3, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Amazing job pronouncing those, Tavia. Awesome. To agree in the Lord, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, when we start to read this in verse 2, we don't actually know what is going on between Euodia and Syntyche, and I think that's probably better. I think it's like finding yourself in a good song on the radio. The more general it is, the more you can apply it to yourself. The more specific it is, the more you're like, "Ah, I'm just going to change the station. Nobody listens to the radio anymore, so... You just hit next. What Paul is doing here is he is calling back. He points them back to chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Euodia, Syntyche, remember you are on the same team. Remember you are supposed to have the same mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. Euodia, Syntyche, remember you are of full accord. We said that was similar to different instruments in the same orchestra. We also said that was very similar to different style flavors of donuts in the same box of donuts, okay? 
different, but making up the whole. Very important. Why is it important that they get along? Because people on the outside looking in are seeing kingdom citizens. So Paul is saying, get along, not just for your sake, not just for others' sake, but get along for heaven's sake. Get along because you are a part of the kingdom of God. You need to act like citizens of the kingdom of God. Act like you belong to the king. Stop acting like you belong to Caesar. Then verse 3, we see something that's pretty crucial, especially in handling conflict today, and that is that conflict resolution often requires a trusted third party. When Paul is writing this, he says, true companion. Now, this true companion can also be uh, translated to meaning yoke fellow. And that doesn't mean you meet up at Village Inn, you order the same kind of eggs every Monday, all right? What this means is you are in the same yoke. For to be equally yoked meant that the oxen, you would put a yoke around their necks and they would plow something for the work ahead or they would carry a load for the load that is behind them and they would be yoked with another oxen. So the load would be lighter. So he is saying you should entrust somebody in your conflict that can be trusted, a fellow yoke fellow, somebody that loves the Lord like you. Pull them into it. Not all conflict can be resolved person to person. Sometimes you have to escalate it. And we see that in Jesus' life. But before we dive into what Jesus says about conflict, I think we need to further dive into how we deal with conflict because a lot of these ways are not healthy. But a lot of these ways are present in our lives. And so according to to Christian counselor and pastor Peter Scazzaro in the book, Emotionally Healthy, Spiritually. He identifies these things. The way that we take care of conflicts is we say one thing to people's faces and another behind their back. We make promises with no intention to keep them. We place blame. We go on attack. We give them the silent treatment because that's going to show them. We become sarcastic We give in because we are afraid of not being liked, or we leak our anger by sending an email or a text message containing a not-so-subtle criticism. We tell only half the truth because we can't bear to hurt a friend's feelings. We say yes when actually what we mean is no. We avoid, we withdraw, and we cut ourselves off from the people around us, or we find an outside person with whom we can share in order to ease our anxiety, and we vent, and we gossip, and we seep our toxic waste all over them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about myself, and I'm certainly guilty of many of these things in the flesh, because I feel offended, because I feel like I need to take care of myself, because I feel like somebody got something for me, and so I need to go and get it back. And so if you are like me, we need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness from that person because we've sinned against that person. We need to ask for forgiveness against God because we've sinned against one of his creation. But there is an alternative. Instead of handling things this way, we can actually handle things in the spirit the way that Jesus tells us to, especially when it comes to conflict within the church. And that starts in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, or if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So as believers, especially when it comes to conflict within the church, our process and the why behind our process is that when somebody offends us, if there's conflict, we go to them. And we go to them alone because it is between the two of you. It is between the two of us. And we handle things in private. There are private and there are public problems, issues within the church that need to be first handled in private because they require private solutions. And then we go with others only if they do not listen. If they listen, congratulations, you've won a brother, you've won a sister back. But if they do not, then you take one or two other people and then you go and talk to them. What does that do? Maybe they're thinking, oh, this is just, this is just a you thing. But when you take brothers and sisters in Jesus with you and you say, no, this isn't just a me thing. Hey, we love you. We are addressing this conflict because we want better for you. We want maturity for you emotionally, spiritually. And so I'm coming alongside you with people that, I'm, that have come alongside me, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to address this. Maybe others can talk some sense into them. If that doesn't work, then you go to the church. Then you go to the spiritually mature that are part of the body of Christ. Then you take it before a pastor or an elder once we get those in place. And then maybe they'll listen to a spiritual leader in their life. If they don't, that's the point that you distance yourself from that person. At that point, this person is a liability. At that point, this person is detrimental and is not safe to be around. They have been addressed on sin in their life three different times with multiple, multiple people. If they're still unwilling to address it, even after you have handled this conflict well and biblically, you need to distance yourself from them. It's also important that we keep this in order because if we do not keep this in order, we will burn people out around us. You keep personal struggles, personal conflicts, personal because it honors that person and it honors you. Don't air somebody's dirty laundry until it is absolutely biblically necessary. Another reason we do it is because it honors God, because we are being obedient in how we handle conflict. At that point, if they still don't listen, then you escalate it to someone else. And if, you, it's still, if they still don't listen, then you elevate it to the place of pastor within the church. Here's what's going to happen if you don't. You're going to take your problem with that person, and you're going to go tell everybody else. You're going to try to get them on so much, man. Hey, check, check. We've, 
We live, baby. Hey, you keep that in your back pocket, all right? We're going to burn out the people around us. The people around us were not meant to bear all of our burdens with us. Yes, there are some that they are supposed to bear with us, but not all of them. And if every person in the church with their struggles, with their conflict, goes straight to the pastor every single time, I don't care who that pastor is, whether it's Billy Graham or whether it's me and Jacob, from the top to the very bottom, you are going to burn those people out. There is an order to the way we deal with conflict, and it is ordered like that for a reason, to honor the people around you, to honor God. Now, there's also another way that you could swing on this, and maybe this is what you've experienced in your marriage. Maybe this is what you experienced in your family growing up, and that is the ostrich approach, where, ah, conflict, I'm going to hide my head in the ground now, because Jesus told me to be a peacemaker, and the best way to be a peacemaker is just to hide from every problem in my life. No, that is absolutely not the way that we deal with conflict when it arises as believers. We do not sweep it under the rug. We do not over-spiritualize it in any way because unresolved conflict becomes a cancer that will eat a church alive. It becomes a cancer that will eat your family, your marriage alive. When it arises, we deal with it. We see Jesus dealt with conflict all the time. He was surrounded by it. Jesus confronted religious conflict He confronted his followers. He confronted even his family. Jesus stood against against one thing on a regular basis, and that was this thing called false peace. Everything's good here. I'm holy. I am self-righteous. You don't need to worry about me, Jesus. And that's exactly the people that Jesus went after. So in our conflict, we go to God. We check our hearts. We go to that person. We hear their hearts. We escalate it appropriately according to Scripture, and we seek resolution. At the end of any conflict, here's where it always ends up. You let that person go. You let that person go of their offense because you realized, again, and I'll say this every time we talk about conflict, every time we talk about offense, because you have been let go, because you have made offense against the King of Kings, and he still gave his life on a cross for you. The ultimate offense forgiven for your sake on your behalf so that you could be made right with God the Father. And so we let offense go because Jesus let us go. So now we move from this conflict that is around us and other people and relationships that we have, and we move to a conflict inside of us. And that is everybody's favorite word in 2022. It is anxiety. All right. Second point this morning is rejoice and release your anxiety. Rejoice and release your anxiety. Healthy churches, healthy Christians, address anxiety according to Jesus. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, there it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. 
Not just when you want to. Not just when things are going good. Not just when you got the raise, not when you got the promotion, not when the kids came home with good grades or no homework. Rejoice in the Lord always. In every circumstance, be more than just happy. Happy is fleeting. Happy is something that is in a moment. But we, as the church, find deep contentment in the Lord because he is all-powerful. He is in control. And when we find contentment and joy and we rejoice in the Lord, then even in the worst of times, remember Paul is writing this on house arrest, not knowing if he will be killed or released. He's saying rejoice. So from a person whose life is in the balance, rejoice in the Lord. Not only rejoice in the Lord, but let your reasonableness be known. If you want to keep community, this means that you have to be reasonable. Being reasonable lines up to the same idea of being concerned with other people. Right? This whole thing has been about lowly service to other people, humble service and loving them. It lines up with being gentle with others. So are we being reasonable with the people in our families? Are we being reasonable with the people at our work? Are we being reasonable with the people in our community? Are we loving them? Are we serving them well? Are we being gentle with them? Do we want what is best for those around us, or are we getting caught up in ourselves? The same thing that Paul's reminding us not to do over and over and over again. And then continued in verse 5, why should we be reasonable? We should be reasonable because Jesus is at hand, and we will be held accountable for our actions before Jesus. Jesus will say, how did you deal with people? How did you deal with conflict when it arose? How did you love and serve those around you? So, we stay reasonable. Verses 6 and 7. This is why we came this morning. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Man, this is... This is the verse you hang up on your wall. You write it on a post-it note. You put it on your monitor. You buy a little coffee mug with it. Anxiety is something that's very real in our lives. Anxiety is something that is very real and alive and rampant within this church. This is something that we need to take seriously. And this is the idea that will play out for the rest of this morning's scripture. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, why are we so anxious? And I'm not going to harp on social media. I'm not going to talk about all the minuscule little problems of anxiety within our life today. Today, I just want to go for this thing at the core. I want to nip it in the bud. I want to attack it at the heart of the issue. And the problem is that we are so anxious because we take God's place. We take God's place on his throne when it comes to taking care of the problems in our lives. We are anxious because we tell God, you know what, God? I would rather hold on. These are, these are my problems, not yours. I would rather hold on to these myself. 
God, I, I fully trust in you for the forgiveness of my sin. I fully trust that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me because you love me and you wanted to make a way for me to be in perfect relationship with you. And I believe that you had the power to raise him from the grave. But God, for whatever reason, these are my pet problems and, and I just, I'm not going to entrust these to you. You might have risen Jesus from the dead, but you know what? I just don't think that you can take care of the issues that I have going on in my life. When it comes to anxiety, when it comes to the problems we have, we get anxious because we don't trust God to take care of the things that are making us anxious. So how do we stop being anxious? Well, Paul gives us a solution. Paul says, by prayer and petition. He says, you want to kill the anxiety in your life, then you address it with prayer and with petition. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Anything. Think about the most anxious thing. Think about the thing that you are most anxious about in your entire life right now. Let's put that at the forefront of your mind. This is the thing that keeps me up at night. This is the thing that causes me stress. This is the thing that I start sweating awkwardly every time I think about it. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, hand your worry over to God in prayer. Hand it over to him. He can handle it. Let the worry in your life tailor the perfect prayer to God. God, here's what I'm worried about. God, I need you to address this. God, I need you to take this and work on it in my life. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, go to God in prayer. Are you anxious? Me too. A lot. A lot more than I would like to admit. But you know what else what I don't do with that anxiety? I don't go to God with it because I think I can handle it because I think I might be a good enough leader. I think I might love Jesus enough that I could just give him the day off. How nice of me. He hasn't needed a day off yet. God only rested at the end of the creation just to give us an example of rest. He's present with me all the time in all of that anxiety. Why wouldn't I just trust it to him? So what else? What else does the Bible say about anxiety, Alex? Because that's really specific and, and I, you know, just praying, I don't know. I feel like anxiety is natural. I feel like I'm just predisposed to it. I feel like uh, it's, in my, it's in my genes. It's hereditary. I feel like it's just because of the situation I grew up in. And I would say, maybe. Maybe all of that is true. What's, what's the rest of the Bible say? The Bible says, when it comes to anxiety, that anxiety is not compliant to God's word. Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing. Isaiah 41.10, fear not. This is also commanded 364 times in Scripture outside of this. Usually it's when an angel shows up and humans are just freaking out because there's this big old angel in front of them. It says, let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. John 14.1, do not be dismayed. Joshua 1.9. Throughout Scripture, we see that anxiety is always a direct opposition opponent and foe when it comes to faith. So what else does the Bible say about how to stop being anxious? It's pretty clear. It says, ultimately, what this comes down to is your mind. First time I went to Christian counseling for 
the massive amounts of anxiety that I find myself struggling with every now and then, I sat down, and he said, all right, tell me what's going on in your life. And he gave me my diagnosis. You want to know what he said to me? He said, you're mentally weak. I said, dude, you suck. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to find me another one of you. It hurt, but it was true. I needed to hear that. Anxiety and how we deal with it ultimately comes down to our minds. First Peter 1.13, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Matthew 22.37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Not just half of it, not just a percentage of it. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Again, keep your eyes focused on the prize that is ahead of us. So, what does this mean? According to Bellevue Christian Counseling, an article that they put out, they say, simply put, it is very difficult to be simultaneously overcome by anxiety and to wholeheartedly trust in God. It is like oil and water. They don't mix. We worry because we are concerned about things that we are uncertain about. In contrast, to trust in God is to know that he is in control, that he loves us, and that he wants what is best for us. We don't need to be anxious if we are confident that he is in control and cares for us. And they reference 1 Peter 5, 7, which says, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Irish biblical scholar. That's better than just a normal biblical scholar. You know he's lived a little, all right? J. Alec Moiter, author of The Message of Philippians, a great resource if you want to take your study on this book deeper, says in some very fancy words, in prayer, anxiety is resolved by trust in God. That which causes the anxiety is brought to the one who is totally competent and in whose hands the matter may be left. In thanksgiving, anxiety is resolved by the deliberate acceptance of the worrying circumstance as something which an all-wise, all-loving, and all-sovereign God has appointed. Prayer takes up the anxiety-provoking provoking question, how? How shall I cope? And answers by pointing away to him, to his resources and his promises. Thanksgiving addresses itself to the worrying question, why? Why has this happened to me? And answers by pointing to the great doer of all who never acts purposelessly and whose purposes never fail. So the question for us, if you're feeling anxious this morning, anxiety leads to depression. If you're feeling depressed this morning, have you submitted your mind fully to Jesus? Or are you holding on to worry because you don't fully trust the king that came to give his life for you? That defeated sin, that defeated death, that defeated the enemy? Do you actually practice the faith that you say that you have? Do we actually think that God can handle it? We have to hand it over. We have to ask Jesus to restore the places of fear and worry in our life. Now, I think we a lot of times want to hand over the mental places in our life. That's probably it. 
these intellectual places in our life where we can think about something, but we don't actually have to feel it, we certainly have to hand that part of our life over to Jesus and ask him to restore it for the toll that fear and worry have taken on it. But it is not just mentally. Stress, anxiety, depression also takes a toll physically on your body. Your body remembers. If I were to say something that would trigger any past trauma in your life right now, there's a chance that physically you would wince because we're not just mental beings. We're not just brains on stilts walking around. And we're not just emotional beings either, but we have to submit ourselves fully to God emotionally because the toll that stress and fear and worry and anxiety has taken on us has changed the way that we feel about life, changes the way that we see what is actually true, changes the way we operate with ourselves, which changes the way we operate with others. So it is mental, it is physical, and it is emotional. We have to fully submit our fears, anxieties, insecurities, worries over to Jesus. And when we do, we have to switch up our worry with thanksgiving. And when we do, when we fully submit our anxiety to Jesus, we tailor our prayers around it. And then the focus that we have in our minds from that point forward should be thanksgiving. Let me switch my focus on what I am so fearful about and thinking God can't handle too, the things I'm so thankful for, and and the things that God has handled in my life, and seeing his protection in my life, and his provision in my life. Let me think about the good things of the Lord instead of the things I don't think he can handle. Let me trust this to him, and then focus on the ways where he has actually come through for me in my life. And when we do that, then And only then do we get verse 7, which says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a supernatural guarding. That's a supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. The only thing that has probably surpassed all understanding in your life is when you gave your life to Jesus and then your anxiety to follow. Anxiety is illogical. It is irrational. It says things that sound like truth, but absolutely are not true. And now what is, what is Paul writing? You hand it over to Jesus? Well, now it's going to be the exact opposite. Now, instead of the anxiety, the worry, the fears in your life being the loudest voices, now that is going to be peace. So hand it over to Jesus and let him supernaturally take the situation over. But at this point, there's a pastor. His name is John Piper. He's incredible. He says that our peaceful hearts can have a tendency to get passive, but they cannot get passive. Instead, they have to stay active, and that's exactly what Paul gives us as we close out this morning. And our third point, and that is to replace worry with what is worthy. Replace worry with what is worthy. Why? Healthy churches, healthy Christians address thoughts and actions according to Jesus. Philippians 4, 8 through 9, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 7, our active minds of peace focus on Jesus. They've been given to us by Jesus, and then they focus on what inspires worship 
to God and service to others. Now, these are things that Paul gives us as an assessment. Paul writes a list out, and he says, check yourself to this. And so we will work our way through this list, and we will illustrate it with the help of their antitheses. I think a lot of times in order for us to see what we should be doing, we should take a look at what we're not doing because what we're, or what we shouldn't be doing. Because what we're, we shouldn't be doing is probably what we are doing. So verse 8, these are the things that you think about instead. Truth. Think about what is true. That means that untrue things, gossip, slander, fake news, have no place in our minds. We are supposed to filter through anything that is misleading in our minds and hone in on what is actually true. Focus on what is honorable. Stray away from things that are disreputable. Stray away from things that are disrespectful. And stray away from things that are dishonorable. Focus on what is just. A mind of peace cares about justice and righteousness and dealing in those ways in the world. Focus on what is pure. Lack impure thoughts. You no longer think impure things like the world, like you once did. Keep focused on what is pure. Focus on what is lovely. Think about what is beautiful. Not grotesque, not ugly, not lovely. And think about what is commendable, not offensive, not going against peace in others. Now remember, we've already talked about addressing conflict, and to not address conflict would be unkind, because then that would allow for a false peace. We want healthy peace. We want true peace, and that is found in healthily dealing with conflict. So this being commendable, not offending others. I'm not giving you a license to be a snowflake, okay? I'm not giving you a license to create snowflakes, all right? We address things healthily in Jesus because he is the one that our minds are set on. He is the one who is our foundation. And then Paul says, if there is anything, and I know especially in today's world, this means that we have got to look out for it. We've got to look out for excellence, virtuous things. And then we've got to look out for what is praiseworthy. What are the actions to others' praise. Do those things outside of sin. And finally, verse 9. These are the things that we practice. What you have learned, Paul says, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you have seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. These are things revealed to Paul by Jesus himself. These are things shared with Paul and backed up as he checked them with the other apostles. This is not anything that he is making up on the spot, but things that he has learned, things that he has received, things that he has heard, and things that he has seen. And then he puts those into practice, and he says, do the same things that I am doing. Now, go do those, these things. And as you do them, remember that you are not alone in it, that God is with you, and that he will give you peace. Now, don't just sit there. Don't just stand up and worship and leave from here and not do anything with it. Now, go do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be a church that is healthy. We want to be Christians that are healthy. We want to address the conflict, the anxiety, the thoughts, and the actions in our life according to the way you say that we should by your word and your word alone. Jesus, this morning, 
We ask that you would help us to pursue healthy relationships with you. We ask that you would help us to address the conflict that is in our lives in the way that you have shown us to. Keep us from our old way of doing things, Jesus, and help us to realize that there is a new way, that there is a better way in you. Jesus, help us as we address the anxiety in our lives the way that you have shown us to. Help us to release it to you fully, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. God, we lay our troubles, we lay our worries, we lay our anxieties, we lay our fears, our doubts, our insecurities. We lay these things over to you. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to realize what we need to let go of, and then we would continue to hand even that over to you. Jesus, help us to address our thoughts in the way that you have shown us. Help us to focus on what is excellent and praiseworthy. Jesus, we want to replace the anxiety in our life with thanksgiving. We want to continue rejoicing in you. So remove from us the dark, the dirty, the sinful, base thoughts from our mind and transform us, renew us, make us restored and new in you and cleanse us mentally, physically, emotionally. The way that only you could. And that is in this umbrella of being clean spiritually. Jesus, this morning we thank you that we can have minds of Christ because we've been transformed by the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for us so that we don't have to continue on miserable, anxious, worrisome, fearful, broken-minded the way that we are, but so that we can move on restored, forgiven, made clean, repurposed, put back together in you. Help us to do that this morning. Help us to put that into action. In your name we pray. Amen.